Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work or inspired something in them. And today I'm really excited to have writer, director, actor, performer, everything, Delilah Bello with me. Hello. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I forgot you were going to do a voice. Or, or Hi, is that your real you? voice? Hello, how are you? Which one is it? We'll never know. Hey, baby. <laughs> For those of you who are not as familiar with Delilah's work, please let me give you an introduction. Delilah is an American stage, film, and television director, writer, actress, and dancer. During her time in front of the lens, she performed everywhere. Saturday Night Live, the Academy Awards, the Billboard Music Awards with Beyonce, and National Jane's Addiction Tour. She is recipient of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion Spotlight Award and has performed in movies such as The Singing Detective with Robert Downey Jr. And she was a dance double for Tyra Banks in Coyote Ugly. And then she was in Rent, as well as music videos for Miles Davis, Lenny Kravitz, Art of Noise, Weird Al, Tom Scott, Bonnie Raitt, and Prince. It's a lot. She starred in a sci-fi pilot opposite Harry Lennox, directed by Carl Weathers, and recently performed with the Roby Theater Company and co-starred on CSI Cyber. Delilah has also created several short experimental films. The 2013 suspense thriller Tunnel Vision, however, starring Christos uh, Ion Overman and Scott Hayes, was her feature directorial debut. In December of 2015, Delilah released her first feature documentary titled Can You Dig This? Uh, executive produced by John Legend, and that won the jury award at the Los Angeles Film Festival. 2017 then marked the laugh premiere of her second feature documentary called Mighty Ground, which recently won the Audience Award at the Calgary International Film Festival. Delilah is a member of Free the Bid, has programmed twice for Slamdance Film Festival, and was on the jury for Milwaukee Film Festival in 2017. She has been seen in over 30 national commercials and print campaigns, including Citron, Ford, Pepsi, Agva, Dr. Pepper, uh, Centauri Brandy, uh, Miyaki for Elle Magazine, Nike, Lazy Boy, and Mercedes-Benz. Essentially, Delilah works. Whoa, that sounded like a lot. And it, I, I have bridged it, Delilah. <laughs> it's almost like another person. Like, who are you talking about? Did you have an out-of-body experience listening to your bio? Yes. I was like, I'm in a box and there's foam and there's a lady talking about someone that did a bunch of work. I remember those things personally. I think that was me. It was you. It was yeah. It was you. Yeah. Um and I would like to introduce the film that Delilah chose to talk about today, which is 2017's Black Panther. Yes. I love that movie. So, as did so many people. I mean, it's amazing. Or I'm sorry, was it 2018? Did 2017, it I think, because I was when I was like doing my homework this morning, I was like, wait, what happened with the Oscars? What year thing? was it? 2017. Or was it this year? No, it was this year. It no. came out this year. Yeah, it was this year. Ta- okay, okay, so time is expandable uh, in our current uh, eon. Yeah. Um, and I'm realizing that just now as I, it feels like Black Panther was a million years ago. Um, can you give me a little explanation about why you chose that film? Well, I love action, like big budget action, because it's like, the hardest thing for me to figure out as like an indie filmmaker it's like Mm -hmm. what is that process like i'm just so kind of enamored with the idea of like making a movie like that um and just cutting it together and and the action scenes and the fight choreography and the special effects it's like still a bit of fantasy left for me as a an audience member you know 
Did you, when you watch it, are you thinking to yourself, like, oh my God, there's so many moving pieces in this one scene. How do they do that? Yes, except for this one, when I was in the theater, I, my filmmaker brain was not there. It was just an experience, which I mm-hmm. love so much. You know, it's like, wow, they, they, they got me. Yeah. You know, the one time they can for, make you forget who you are and what you do for a living. Yes. Nice. Yes. Um, for those of you who haven't seen Black Panther, I mean, it's on Blu-ray right now. Uh, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is always is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Black Panther now, this is your chance. And you're back, so let's give a quick synopsis of Black Panther. <laughs> Written by J. Robert Cole and Ryan Coogler and directed by Coogler for release in 2018. Yeah, 2018. Black Panther opens in Oakland in 1992 as a man is trying to hide his cache of weapons. Suddenly, the king of Wakanda knocks on his door and accuses the man, his brother, of straying from his undercover mission to assist arms dealers. Why are you here? Because I want you to look me in the eyes and tell me why you betrayed Wakanda. After an altercation, the king kills his brother and leaves his nephew Eric, a.k.a. Killmonger, alone. Flash forward to now, Wakanda is thriving kingdom comprised of five African tribes united under one king. And after the death of their old king from a terrorist attack, the young T'Challa will be assuming the throne. He brings back his ex and undercover informant, Nakia, to witness the ceremony and is challenged by one man, M'Baku, who ultimately loses in a bloody battle. All seems well until it's found out that Ulysses Clow, is it Clow? I can't remember how to say his name. We'll say Clow, has been stealing Wakanda's precious element, vibranium, in a series of museum heists. T'Challa, Nakia, and Okoye head to Korea to try to catch Clow in the act of selling vibranium, but they're thwarted when Clow's accomplice shows up. It's Killmonger! They're even more surprised when Killmonger later shows up in Wakanda, dragging Clow's body behind him as an offering. And he also challenges T'Challa for the right to the throne. I'm exercising my blood right the challenge for the mantles of King and Black Panther. So in a gruesome battle, Killmonger beats T'Challa and ascends the throne, while T'Challa is tossed over the falls and presumed dead. Nakia and T'Challa's sister Shuri and mother Ramonda escape to beg M'Baku to help them. But M'Baku has something better. A half-dead T'Challa. Using a sacred potion, they're able to save and restore T'Challa as the Black Panther, and they return to wage war on Killmonger and the traitors. And though the experience is tragic, it convinces T'Challa that Wakanda should not separate itself from the world, but it should help all its black brothers and sisters everywhere. All of you are wrong! To turn your backs on the rest of the world! We let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right. No more. Well done. Whew, that's, that's a lot. Whew, that was a hard summary. There's to, to... a lot of hard summaries in uh, the movies that we do, I'm finding. Um, but yeah, a lot happens. It's a comic book movie, so yes. it's got a history like steeped in this. Are you a comic book fan at all? Or No, I mean, I actually I have one that I'm writing and have been writing forever, but reading other people's comics not really yeah but i wanted to say about your summary when i was watching it cheat cheat cheating it this morning yeah yeah, yeah. i was thinking this is really a story about dark versus light yeah. and 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 what form of power we use because the antagonists have you know great reasons for for fighting the people of wakanda i yeah. mean they they think and that's a great way to write an antagonist but it's like where he goes wrong is 
because anger and darkness, you can you can create a lot of power that way. Oh, uh, yes, definitely. And it's great story fodder, too. You know, it's very classic. So you just get to, you know, people understand what it is and you get to play with it. Um, but I, I enjoy that that part of the writing a lot. And I think that maybe um, sometimes comic book movies kind of lose sight of villains. Like they don't know how to write villains anymore. You look at the films that have the good villains, and to me, I think that a villain is what's going to make or break a movie. The hero kind of reacts to the villain. And and if it's a good villain, then you're going to have some really interesting reactions, I think. Yeah, because um, we all have vil- inner villains. And I love that Michael B. Jordan, who had been working with um, uh, Ryan Coogler for uh, multiple movies before this. I think this is his third or fourth collaboration with him. Um, that he chooses to play the villain. You know, they came off a of Creed where he was the hero, right. the complex hero, and now he's like, no, I'm Killmonger. I'm the bad guy. Right. But I mean, as an actor, he's probably thinking, not of the entirety of the script. He's probably thinking, what you know, what am I trying to get? Oh yeah. And but yeah, I guess you know. Career-wise, playing the bag, it didn't seem, he was just a babe in the movie, really. Yeah, it's just like, oh, I get to take off my shirt and I've been working out for Creed so much. Like, this is fine. There was, like, there was an audible gasp in my theater the second that he was shirtless, where it was just like, <gasps> oh, no, he is foxy in that. <laughs> but I think that with this villain, with Killmonger, it's something where you, you understand where you could get to where he was and how he felt. Um, But he also represented something very dark about toxic masculinity, um, something we talk about in the consciousness right now, Um, this kind of unresolved animosity that becomes corrosive and it's ultimately punishing for both himself and for the people around him. So uh, I wanted to talk about how he prepared for the role because to prepare, he quarantined himself. He spent a lot of time alone um, because that's how Killmonger would have grown up. There would be no parental figures. There would be no friends. He would be very misunderstood. And so he just kind of walked around alone and was by himself and even on set, you know, kind of just alone, um, just thinking, you know, and you have that time to think you also have time to stew about the people who have wronged you and, you know, the way that your life turned out. But that's what helped Jordan get into this lonely place where he could understand how Killmonger lashes out how he does. Um, And I think it's, I mean, like we discount the fact that these are great performances. Because we're just like, oh, the action's great. It's wonderful. But, you know, these are these are fucking phenomenal actors who are stepping into these roles. So for sure, the performances, I feel like that's what makes the movie. And and I'm I'm curious. I mean, would you mind talking with me about kind of actor process? Sure. A little bit. Um, I mean, what's your experience of, of trying to get into roles? Does that ring true to you? Something that Michael B. Jordan does where you just have to like, you know, you're not doing full method, but you're trying to get yourself into that headspace of this character. I mean, I think any environment that is safe for an actor, um, which props to Ryan Coogler for creating an environment where he can wander around and not talk to people and feel safe doing that, where mm-hmm. it's like, what's that guy's problem? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. for sure that that's, you know, um, amazing. Although if women did it, would that mean like, I mean, would people be like, I mean, what's her, what's her deal? I mean, I feel like. If he was doing that on that, I feel like that's probably a set thing, like from set to set. I feel like it probably trickles down. But um, so to me, yeah, I mean, the longer of a process you have to get ready, I think with a role like that, the better the better you're going to be. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I studied with this guy named Rick Edelstein, mm-hmm. who was super method. And he would have us go into some pretty crazy places. Um, I guess my question is, is because I was telling you, I talk a lot about vibration and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. My big question is, is like when you go that deep into a role, you're you're starting to think and feel like that character. And what kind of what scares me is like what kind of re- reverberations are there mm-hmm. in your known universe that you're creating for for doing art like this, like fully enveloping a role. To me, that's the scariest part that that we don't really think of when people are putting themselves into mm-hmm. these types of, you know, if you're painting something, you're, there's still this kind of separateness. Yeah. But um, to me, that's where it's like you're really just sort of selling, not selling your soul, but you're putting your soul. You're renting you're it. You're renting you're your You're leasing soul. it for you're, a little while. And that could be dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you do to try to get out of that? I mean, I would assume, like, Michael B. Jordan seems to be, like, a cheerful, happy person. So, you know, maybe he throws himself a pizza party when he's done filming, you know? Like, maybe he's, he's you know, how do you get out of that? I don't know. I feel like I've I've af- actually asked that question from a lot of people. And I don't know that you fully get, I don't think you fully get out of it. I think that, that that's why a lot of people get paid a lot of money. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. for one, they allow us as audience members to sit and, uh, you know, watch the show go by and create catharsis for us. And then they are, they're renting out a piece of their soul, but like a little kind of notch comes out where they can't get that back. And I think it does alter, it makes you grow as a human, but I think that, that it definitely, you know, it takes, I think it takes its toll for sure. Yeah. So you have to be, I think, probably very strong of mind. I think so, but. I mean, we also see a lot of people kind of going kooky because, yeah. you know, yeah. not to talk badly about about people, but, you know, I think it definitely does take its toll on you. Well, Michael B. Jordan, thank God, is seems to be okay and is going to be in another creed. So there we go with him. I'd love to talk a little bit about movies that double as movements. Um, because you have some filmmakers from the old school, notably a lot of white men, who feel that film should not be representative of anything but art. But then you have filmmakers from the new school who feel that movements and art are not mutually exclusive. Um, and Kugler has said, quote, I think progress comes in ebbs and flows. I hope things continue to open up. As more content gets made, more opportunities like ours can come about for folks. But you've got to put your foot on the gas when it comes to that or things can go back to where they were. So he feels an urgency. And then you've got a lot of people who are on the other spectrum are kind of pushing back on that. Like, why is this a move? Why does why can't it just be art? You know, why does it have to have a message? But, you know, I would also argue that all movies have a message. It's just, you know. I feel like you can't escape art having a message. Like you can't walk down the street and not get messages. You know, it's, it's like, like they live. It, yeah, you can't. Anything that you do, even if you're trying not to do anything, somehow you're creating a mirror for society to see itself. Even if you create a, you know, really basic rom-com and you're doing it in the time, the present tense that you live in, you are still creating a mirror for people to see themselves in. So mm-hmm. no matter what, it's going to be something, you know, that's going to force growth at some point. But if you're a- actively trying to do something uh, to change to change culture, I feel like that's kind of a paradox. And the reason why is because is when we fight something, we create 
a bigger monster in some senses because we're yeah. just giving it energy. And then when we focus in on what we'd like to change and create change by doing it, we can actually we can actually make make change. So it's like thinking about things in terms of political movements when creating art. Sometimes I think that can backfire. But you were also talking about is is it is it a form of privilege to be able to um, just make a movie and not worry about mm-hmm. you know what kind of cultural implications are there from my my creation? Mm-hmm. But I think that goes for people uh, you know different genders and different races. Like I know there's a lot of female filmmakers who want to make you know dark edgy uh, shoot 'em up movies that don't save the world at all Mm -hmm. and feel boxed in. So I think that, um, gosh, we've got a long way to go before that that goes away. Yeah. You know, I think any any movie that a female filmmaker makes as well is going to be something that people see as a message, even if it's not. People put those things on you. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and I'm going to talk a little bit with you about the role of the filmmaker and the filmmaker putting themselves into their film. Uh, Okay, one quick break. Come back to WKEP at night. Up next... Looks like we've got a PSA from local forest ranger, Duck Newton. Do I start now or? Yeah, lean in, Duck. Yeah, sorry. Um, Okay, I I wanted to address the unfortunate situation that, okay, listen, two people, good people that I and a lot of y'all have known our whole lives are dead. Torn to shreds by... A savage, uh, bloodthirsty beast that defies human comprehension. If you'd like to know more, stop by the Cryptonomica, Kepler's premier museum of the macabre. Just off highway... Come come on. We just wanted to warn y'all, to to beg you. If you see one of those things out in the forest, don't fight. Don't scream. Run. Run as far as you can. Doc, it's almost midnight. Listen, folks. If you see anything, please go to thelamplighter.org and let us know. And get behind a locked door tonight. Anything else we need to... Oh, they're leaving. Okay, well, that's thelamplighter.org, and stay safe out there, Kepler. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Delilah Velo, and we're talking about Black Panther. Um, I think that we need to address the filmmaker's story as represented in the film, i.e., how much of yourself can you or should you put into your story? Uh, with Black Panther, you've got this added storyline about Oakland. That's not there in the original comics, um, but you've got Cooler and Cold trying to contextualize what the story about a faraway imaginary land in Africa may have to do with kids who do not in any way feel like they are royalty in the Bay. And you've also got them kind of tying it to reality with Oakland being the home for in real life Black Panther movement. Um, But there's always a risk when you do something like that um, in putting the personal in your art, how much you reveal uh, luckily, he'd already dove into those waters when he did Fruitvale Station, but doing it twice, you might run to the risk of um, being that filmmaker who's obsessed with an idea and keeps using it again and again. Like, for instance, there's an Afro-Latina uh, writer and uh, Black Panther superfan I follow, Maria Gisela, who, when it was announced Ryan Coogler would produce the new Space Jam, made the joke, quote, Oakland about to be referenced 50 times. And <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, you love Ryan Coogler and you're like, yes, yes, you're doing 
doing the thing for Oakland. That's amazing. But also you're like, yeah, we get it. Oakland. Okay. All right. Our, like a space jam going to be set in Oakland, you know? Don't they say that like every, you know, every artist is remaking the same story over and over and over again because there's something that they're trying to uncover? Yes. And that you find that in their work? Yes. So you think that could be the reason why. And same thing with actors. I actually have this argument, an ongoing argument, really annoying with my mom about um, different actors. You know, she thinks that someone's a really good actor if they're completely different from who they are in their last role or their regular life. And I'm like, that's not necessarily what makes someone a good actor. They're exploring a story and they're emanating emo you know they're emanating mm-hmm. um but yeah i don't think that we can get away from that you can't get away from yourself you 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 can't why fight it but we are all one so hey yeah this is some vibe <laughs> stuff isn't it we're gonna talk about vibrations <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I mean that's where my head has been at so well i'm curious i mean you've also put yourself into some of your movies can you talk about that um so, yeah, I put myself in tunnel vision um, as an attorney, attorney and Conat. That was like a really scary experience. And I always wonder, like, how does Clint Eastwood do such a good job at that? Because I felt like I it's not so much that I lost control of my crew, but it was like they didn't communicate with me as well. Yeah, I felt like, you know, and then there was no one to direct me. Um, so you felt so- kind of like suspended and, and not supported because you would have to be the one supporting yourself or it was it was that yeah and like not being able to really look into the monitor and see like how's this you know coming across and also um just the crew felt like a million miles away from me you know I just you know as in the actor shoes um yeah and then so the other my second documentary I danced in it that was my producer who was like hey show up and mm-hmm. do a shindig for us so that wasn't really my idea one thing i want to get into for the nuts and bolts of this movie is um something that kugler was really adamant about when he was um making this film is that everyone in the cast would have natural hair i.e no relaxers no flat irons nothing that would make black hair look more eurocentric um but what's fascinating about that choice is that it also pushed camille friend the head of the hair department to become ever more creative with the multitude of ways in which natural hair is presented. She developed Michael B. Jordan's hybrid fade dread style with some extensions. Um, and then she did a Wakandan knot for Lupita Nyong'o. And then she gave Letitia Wright braids, even though it took a full day every two weeks to redo them. Uh, having been in front of and behind the camera, I was wondering if you could talk about the presentation of black hair in your work. So I started when I was a kid actor. Yeah. And my hair was natural. And it was in braids. So at that point in time, there was no worries. Then I wanted my hair to swing back and forth. And I asked my mom if I could get a relaxer. And she said yes, which I wish that she hadn't. But there wasn't like YouTube with all these sisters like telling you what to do with your ringlets at the time. And I have a white mom. So she really didn't know. Oh, man. Yeah. And um, so my hair just slowly just got more and more scraggly. Mm -hmm. And then when I started working... um, you know, in front of the lens, there was a lot of hair pieces going on, just hair pieces, a lot of straight hair going on um, and ponytails and f- mixed with frizz mm-hmm. because I was also dancing and it was 
a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I never really figured it out. Um, <laughs> oh, no. But I, I've, like, been – that's why it's up in a bun right now. Um, yeah, dancer's bun all the way. Just yes. don't think about it. Don't do anything. Just put it back. Yes. Um, but I love that he that he um, promoted natural black hair because – uh, like a long time ago, I was I was doing a dance concert in Martinique, mm-hmm. and um, they had sort of gotten ahead of the natural hair thing there a long time time ago because there was you know less advertising of like sisters with straight hair, so all the women there sort of these beautiful creatures with natural hair. It was like shocking for me to see, and all of the billboards had natural hair, and the women were sort of walking around with this poise that I didn't see from women of color in the United States. And I was like, interesting, because they're seeing themselves day in and day out. um, And that's empowering. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like now there's so much more natural hair everywhere. And I don't see it going away. So if you were to star in this film that you are, you know, writing and working on, would you feel comfortable um, going natural hair? I've already thought about the hair for it, which is funny that you're actually That's asking. interesting. So that was like one of the first things kind of on your list that you were you were navigating. Yes. And um, that would be in terms of the character. She's someone who um, had a really serious drug problem and who is remaking herself um, in the the real world. And I in the beginning of the movie, she's just a wreck. Mm-hmm. And I thought my hair should be just on its driest day, yeah, um, and just standing up everywhere, to and fro, um, just nappy, 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 nappy. Um, but so. I mean, that's I mean, that's creative in a, in a way where maybe like uh, in in that manner, you know, like natural hair can tell the story of the character in a in in a much more textured manner, just visually, you know, just yeah, that idea, yeah, that it's an asset. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, we definitely need to see more ideas of, you know, black beauty in the media because you get this idea. It's like if your hair doesn't do this or that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't feel beautiful. Um, So, yeah, I think even more even more renditions of black hair would be great. Yeah, all of it. Yes. Camille Friend did a lot to to give multiple styles and gave birth to that Killmonger look, which is handsome. Yes. It's very handsome. Yes. We, we've we already done the he's a babe thing. We know. <laughs> I, know. I don't even know if I'm allowed to, to, to keep considering that. It's done. We're over right. it. Um, I want to get into the massive set of the Warrior Falls and the gorge that was built over four months in a back lot in that's Georgia. M- that's my favorite scene in the movie there. Shit. It, uh, so it was outside. They built it outside, partially because of the size, you know, so it's so big, but also because they needed to capture some natural daylight. And to do that, they set up these massive 60-square-foot bounce diffusers over the set, which is, you know, basically like um, kind of white-surfaced, giant you know, uh, materials that help literally bounce light back onto um, the set and where you're shooting. Um, and then they just kind of moved them whenever the sun moved. So it was a lot of orchestral movement of many people. Um, and so you can imagine it was extremely difficult, involved hundreds of crew reacting simultaneously. 
And I was wondering if we could get into a little bit of talking about large set pieces and, you know, they're scary. You have to build things. And and it's, I mean, Kugler came from an indie background and then he's like controlling. That's, see, that's what I'm talking thing. about. Like why? Because you asked me, why did I choose this one? It's because I would love to have that opportunity. And it's like, gosh, you know, he came from indie land, too. And I know that he has a huge support system around him. And yeah. that's what what helps you know there's always a head of a department that's like this is going to happen um and you guys still think on your your feet but yeah i personally have not had the opportunity yet to work with such a, a large set but would would love to in some ways i feel like i want to say that my guess is that that's easier at least the set not it the might light, be. yeah because you're not dealing with like well if you're outside, you're still dealing with helicopters and things, but you're you're you've got a little bit more of controlled environment, which is you know less. You don't have to worry about permits or you know mm-hmm. the, the police kicking you off the block. Yeah, like you, know? you own it. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to be like, oh, you only have this house until twelve, <laughs> right. and then someone's going to come in and tell you like, you got to get the hell out of here, and like you just get the shots that you get, and that's right. it. You know. Yeah. It could actually be much easier, and and of course, when you're on a large set, you have all these people that you trust who are just good at their jobs and they're taking care of that stuff. So as a director, you can focus on, you know, the action and the matter at hand because you've already done all this work and and prep. You know, you've already thought about these things and people are, you know, carrying out your vision. Right. I mean, yeah. I love, I love, the, I mean, the, there's a second scene with the, on that set mm-hmm. that's, I feel like. Got to get your bang for your buck. You build that set, you do through right. <laughs> as much as you can there. <laughs> yeah. And he, and the lighting is like during the fight scene between um, the babe of the universe of the movie. Yeah. Um, and um, T'Challa, it's the, the light is, is amazing. And I wonder how much they actually did afterwards. Well. They did quite a bit afterwards. Rachel Morrison had come up with uh, the cinematographer had come up with Ryan Coogler the idea that they wanted it to be a cloudy sky that ha- only had some sun streaks coming through. It was kind of like after a rain, um, and so they set up a few different um, other diffusers, um, different types of diffusers for that scene, so that it would be you know just some sunlight coming through the cracks. You know they would like, control how much natural sun came in, and then they would add in those those clouds later on. Right, and then they had to think in terms of like what's on the other side of that. Um, set. Yes. So like how like were they using green screen when they were shooting the opposite direction? Because I don't feel like it was a 360 set. No, no. It's ha- I think it had to be green screen, right? Like as if you yeah. look at the the thing, like you've got the gorge, right? Right. There's, I mean, they definitely didn't build a gorge. No. <laughs> in Georgia. No. Yeah. It was probably flatlands. There could have been buildings just behind there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they had to know when they were shooting in in that direction, what was going to be there. It's a lot. What's the the largest kind of set piece that you've worked on? You know, when I did Tunnel Vision, I'm going to have to say that that was the largest set piece. Or, yeah, um, because... Was it like a specific action sequence, you think? Or just something that, like... You know, I've... That whole movie was all stolen footage. It was all stolen (laughs) footage. But when you go to a small town to shoot, no one ever asks you for permits. And if yeah. you need extras, they 
they everybody calls their cousin. Where did you shoot this? In Pennsylvania. Yeah. In a small little tiny town. And um, people were like, you need extras? You need a restaurant? You need a jail sale? You need you need a... Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, you need a... Um, no, I'm telling you, that budget was like 90K. Like, we squeezed my whole crew. Were com- they came from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, we're sleeping on cots. In an old house with two stories and one bathroom, and like I would have to get up before everybody, mm-hmm. and I was literally crawling over people's cots in the living room to get to my coffee maker. Mm-hmm. So when you're asking about like, I mean, I guess like the courtroom scene was a huge set, but it was like you can't dress it; you got to get in and out. So I've been that that was just definitely stolen footage, and that could be why, like in Dockland, you know, you know, same thing. The world has been my 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 set documentary. That's I mean that's one of the things. Um, uh, the director Deborah Granick, when I talked to her earlier this year, she had a movie that called uh, came out called Leave No Trace. She works a lot in documentaries now because it's one of those things where she just got tired of having to ask for permission all the time, and in the world of documentary, it is. The entire, you know, place, the entire universe is your set. You you set it up wherever you want and then you shoot. Right. Although there was one evening I was out with um, the guy I was following, the homeless gentleman um, in downtown. And and he's uh, he was a homeless gentleman who was uh, uh, trying to turn his life around through music. Right. So I was, yeah, I was just following him. And um, there was one street, like a super nice street, and a security guard tried to stop me from shooting um, and I knew it was because I was with this homeless guy and he just, his brain clicked and he just thought, you know, I've got to exercise some authority here. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we had a lot, me and the security guard had a long discussion about what was allowed and what was not allowed because I just had a small camera with me, you know, going through, um, downtown. And I said, so would you have stopped me if this was an iPhone? Because lots of people are out shooting with an iPhone and he's like, nope, because you're allowed to. And I said, well, this is just a slightly larger camera. What's what's the difference? You know, mm-hmm. and I just thought that that was so. But, yeah, generally people I think you have to put your invisible shield on when you want to do a doc because otherwise you attract attention to yourself. Man, it's, it's true. You become like the subject of other people's imaginations as you're trying to make something about the subject that you're following. Yes. (laughs) Well, uh, on that, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back and we're going to talk about some lighting details. Lighting is very fun. Yay! One quick break. Hello, Maximum Fun. I am Oliver Wong, scholar, journalist, DJ, etc. And I'm Morgan Rold. I'm a music supervisor who loves stilettos. We host Heat Rocks, a music podcast where we talk to influential artists and scholars about the albums that changed their lives. On our most recent episode, we had the chance to talk with none other than R&B legend Macy Gray mm. about one of her favorite albums, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by <laughs> Yeezy. We get deep talking about everything from Kanye's college dropout days all the way up to his most recent shenanigans. I just think it's weak, and I don't think he has to do that, and and I was just disappointed. So make sure you, dear listener, are subscribed because you definitely do not want to miss this conversation. Hate rocks every Thursday right here on Maximum Fun. 
Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Delilah Velo, and we are talking about Black Panther. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about lighting, touched on it in our discussion about that big Warrior Fall set piece, but I love to talk about film's history of poorly lighting black skin. Dan Cornwall, the gaffer in charge of lighting on Black Panther, has talked a lot about this. Um, he'd been frustrated with how black skin always seemed artificially lit because white directors would go overboard and give black actors their own individual light source to try to balance out visual tension next to the white actor. So Cornwall um, stuck to large, soft light sources like the bounce off those giant diffusers and then natural sunlight. But still, he believes there's not an exact science to lighting black skin, which is why so many fail, because they're discouraged by the trial and error it takes to get it right for each person. And that's very interesting to me that on this giant movie that all of this lighting is just all trial and error until they got it right. Wow. Is that why I look so funky half the time? <laughs> I didn't realize. It's interesting. I mean, like I like so much of film was developed for lighter or white skin that I don't think that you know there is necessarily and was it? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, uh, that probably sounds naive, but I, I just hadn't. I mean, I had, I like heard these stories, but I just hadn't focused in on just lighting black skin. I mean, I, I have like when I've when I shot Ronald, my guy, he's very, very, very dark skin, mm -hmm. um, and adjusting, adjusting, you know, um, natural light while I was shooting him, um had to be very careful and then yes the people with lighter skin would get blown out and so would my sky sometimes but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. um i just kind of thought of it as sort of just an artistic palette um yeah but um that it's it's actually an interesting thing to do but people on bigger sets they just kind of they're like eh we're you know we're quick we need to finish this like they're just they're they don't have the patience to try to figure out how to make every person look their best right so it almost creates like kind of like a flatness with dark skin exactly. that's what i think that i do notice because yeah in black panther it's just there's a lot of golden going on and it's oh my god beautiful so and the the makeup um you know the hair and makeup the the um the artist she developed a makeup that had a gold undertone it's almost like a gold sheen that she put under everyone's skin um uh and and that really kind of bounced a lot of that natural light um, that Rachel Morrison and um, and uh, Dan Cornwall were putting into it. So it was a, it was a kind of conjunction thing that they were doing. But you know maybe maybe you need to get your hands on some of that gold makeup, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> either that or just uh, sets only with black folks. No, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I hadn't even like thought about this. Um, I hadn't even thought of that as a as a challenge until until this moment. Um, yeah, I mean, can you imagine though that there's like definitely a bunch of people who are like trying to figure out exactly what the lighting for this one person is going to be, and it's going to change throughout the entire process. But everyone just has to sit down and be patient and say, "I need these stars to look good and have depth," you know? Right. I mean, yeah, because the movie it's not like everybody's the same skin tone. It's like you're a person of color, but it's just all over, all over the gamut. All over the mat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, um, what's the guy's name in that really funny scene? He's like the CIA um, guy. Oh, Martin Freeman, his character. God, yeah. I can't remember his character name. He's hilarious. But they, um, they did a really good job with with him in the same scenes as Letitia Wright. Yes. I mean, so it's 
very possible. So I wonder what the um, – love to sit down with the cinematographer and find out, like, what are the, the real technical issues, yeah. you know? Wouldn't it be – I mean, it would be really great if they just taught classes and how to light different colors. And instead of, like, film school, I think that, they, you know, it's just like, here's lighting. But I don't think that there's, like, a consideration necessarily with, like, the experimenting that you might have to do if you have someone who is, um, you know, any shade darker than, you know, ivory or something. I'm a little bit uh, interested. I think we should talk at least a little, at least, on um, the production design of this movie. Um because it is absolutely beautiful, and I, I would like to, before we go, talk about the Buzan Casino. Um, because the casino scene in Black Panther is gorgeous. It's one of my favorites. But it's also the one that seems to have the most moving parts and most collaboration of any of the scenes. Yeah. Um, and that is because of the production design. Um because it was designed specifically to assist with stunts and cinematography. Hannah Beachler, the production designer, was trying to fulfill a lot of requests from Kugler and Morrison. The big thing was that they wanted the action sequence to be one take. Though, of course, in the final cut, it did end up being, you know, cut up just a little bit, um, which, you know, whatever. They still get a great job on it. Um, but a one-take shot that traverses around an environment is doubly hard uh, because that means you can't stop and set up lighting for whichever area you're shooting next. The lighting has to be built directly into the set and be ready in all areas to go at any point in time. So you notice in that scene that there is a lot of lamps and there's a lot of screens with lights behind them. And that's all part of the design. But Bichler then built platforms into the set, which had to have balconies to get movement for people to fly down into the into the fight. So even though the set is like quite beautiful and memorable, you know, and it's definitely inspired by all of the James Bond movies, which I'm not sure. If, yeah. Maybe if you saw it like the like a Casino Royale vibe of it. Um, but that was purposeful. And I think maybe people just think of production design as making things look pretty or interesting. But there's so much function to the design. It's the same thing, you know, with hair, with makeup, with the uh, costume. Costumes with Ruthie Carter's costumes for this. I mean, these people are these are craftspeople at the top of their game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for you, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on production design? Because you've had a low budget. It's not something you can build these huge sets. So, like, how do you try to build character into a scene with a very minimal production design? I feel like it's the the frame becomes your production designs, like looking through the lens and like how can you take what you've got in front of you and mm-hmm. make it make it beautiful, yeah, um, and use the light that you have and or what materials you have and create something from from that, mm-hmm. you know. So I mean, would you would you set up the the shot and be like, this is my frame, what do I need to put into this? Um, so with the docs. Never, I never adjusted any any bit of the frame that I can remember. Maybe a little bit of what with the narrator, a little bit with mm-hmm. some of his plants and stuff. But for the most part, it's just using natural light and reality to do my best to create beauty. Yeah, cinematic beauty. Um, and with tunnel vision, we um, for the most part had. To, Again, deal with what did we have um, mm-hmm. and make something make something out of that. So now I'm feeling just a bit like a baby because at this point, I didn't even know. Like, um, 
I guess the production, the person would have to come up to me and ask me those questions, and then I would start because I haven't had a chance to 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 build sets. To yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked on them as you know, like in Coyote Ugly, I've worked on amazing sets, but I never have, from a directorial perspective, had to deal with that yet but i'm looking forward to the idea of it. i mean what would you what would be kind of like a fantasy set of something that you would want to like build Ooh. or dress so i already have an idea in my head what? um so kind of like um what's that movie big fish mm-hmm. i have like a set it's like big fish meets hugo Oh, Ooh. yeah, that's like really, really <laughs> like extravagant. Y- yes, right? yes, yes. Like this. So, l- kind of like car, car, like caricature, cartoonish kind of Tim Burton meets this elegant kind of over the top with a little bit of shock a lot. Okay, you know, okay. just right. like just very like, what world are we in? There's like, are you in Europe? Are you in like this zend out America? Like, you know, are you in the middle of the South? Where are you? But these sort of long streets with little tiny shops and a lot of activity going on, um, people going in and out of stores, cars going by, Ferris wheels, blue skies. Um, Big choreographed shots, um, somebody jumping across rooftops, sliding down things. That's an action hero. This is like, like yeah, this is like yeah. Cirque du Soleil meets <laughs> yeah. um, Chocolat meets, yeah. yeah, Tim Burton. This is interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's my... That's, that's my, your aesthetic? Well, that's my comic, uh, comic series that I wrote that I am now turning it... Well, I'm working on, I'm trying to make it a little bit more R. Mm-hmm. Rated because me and my writing partner tend to get a little bit Pollyanna. So <laughs> I'm like, wait, we got to, f- this is just too, like, for a 12 year old, we've got to fix this. Um, but yeah, then we want to turn it into a graphic novel and make a feature. Um, but it would be one of those big budget, it has to be a big budget thing. And it would require all of those sets and green screens. And that's why I chose, you know, chose Black Panther because I'm like, I want to do that. Yes. And it's, you know, like whatever you can learn from, you know, the new masters, right? Well, also, where I was at the Los Angeles Film Festival. They have like a DGA lunch um, where, you know, you get to sit and learn about the DGA. And that's and, the Directors Guild of America. Yeah. And so all the directors that are at the film festival, most of them come and sit and have lunch. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit late, so I got squeezed in between these two guys who I didn't recognize from there's like a director's retreat and where you get to know all the directors but these guys I didn't know who they were and I'm like hey so how are you and who are you and what's your film and um it was like book of henry so that's who I was sitting next to it was like you know and then the other guy he also was like one of the not not in competition films and um I I asked the guy to the left of me um so how did you get such a big budget? And he said he'd come from – he did something on YouTube and then he got a big budget. And I was like, what? And then <laughs> – like, how did that – you know, how did that happen? And then um, Book of Henry guy um, – so I was just trying to bounce off with of Colin Trevorrow. Yes, thank you. Um, how did you – what talked to me about special effects? So this was like back then. I still want to do this like big budget movie, you know. And he said, you know – as long as you think on your toes, there's going to be people there. You're not expected to know everything about every department. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and that's what I think happened with Ryan 
Kugler going, you know, I know he did Creed, but that sort of more like indie thing Mm -hmm. going, you don't have to know how all the moving pieces work. There's heads of departments, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And he he infused it with indie sensibilities. You've got handheld camera and very big action scenes. And that is not something that you do in a big action movie. You know, there's he still had a little piece of himself, but I'm sure was asking questions of the experts around him. Right. And his his the performances, too. I mean, props to the actors, but he there's a bit of fruit Fruitvale Station, I feel like in this kind of like naturalism that actually even helps to play with the humor mm-hmm. with with the the actors and um yeah there's like a naturalism that you would find in Fruitvale Station in Black Panther that I I did sort of draw those parallels when I was watching it. Yes. It's nice to see a filmmaker where you can you can see that they didn't just leave their roots behind. Yeah. How uh, do you leave your roots behind? I guess you just get like crushed by a conglomerate sort of you know how does that how, how do you lose your voice? I don't know. But Delilah, promise me that you won't. Unless I do this. <laughs> That's a form of losing my voice. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Blamp Feather. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. All of you are wrong! MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.